Welcome back to another impactful night of Impact Education Leadership. This is episode 108. I'm your host, Adi Sweet Fire, this room third. Tonight's talent is Buddy Thornton, the Private Social Change Agent Pro. Buddy Thornton, please say hello again to the people. Good evening, Isaiah. Good evening, everybody. And it is such a nice night to return and finish our discussion about choice dynamics. That's right. That's what we're talking about tonight. Well, the topic tonight is going to be, uh, we're going to define the long-term efficacy and positive social impact of that choice dynamic that you just mentioned as a continuation from the last episode, which was episode 107. So if you didn't listen to episode 107, go back and listen to that before you listen to episode 108. Uh, tonight is going to be, we're going to, we're going to do a deep dive into the long-term efficacy and positive social impact of choice dynamics. And with that being said, we're gonna, we're gonna look at how, human, how humans perceive their surroundings and their environments to determine what, what constitutes what their preferred goals are uh, as it relates to influence and as it relates to decision-making and choices that they're going to face, that they have faced, and how well they'll be able to navigate around those choices. In academic environments, teachers undertake the audacious learning tasks while engaging with infinitely different students with unique worldviews, utilizing choice dynamics, emphasis, structure, while honoring each student's uniqueness. Tonight, Buddy Thornton will revisit choice dynamics while aligning choice concepts with the educational process and family development. So, with that being said, let's dive in. And, and we're talking about engagement, we're talking about growth mindsets. And so we're gonna kinda of help the listeners calibrate and adjust and align you know, some of the navigational strategies that they've been doing so far and kinda of just add some more tools to the toolkit and so let's dive into this topic right away. So, you know, buddy, you, you were on uh, the other night with the same topic, and it was so much, so much information that was being said. I asked that you would come back on, and right away you said you would. So we're just we're just doing a continuation from that um, conversation that we had the other time. So with that being said, you were, you were talking about choice dynamics. You were talking about what... Uh, was the core of choice dynamics in your heart and how it's your passion and why it was your passion. And so with that being said, uh, how does choice dynamics lead to long-term efficacy for students at home, uh, school, and and beyond and beyond those environments? That would be my first question to start this discussion off with you tonight. Well, Isaiah, the most important thing to understand is that once you start embracing that there needs to be a framework for choice dynamics, you need to understand a little bit of the biological imperative for making proper choices. Uh, for the, the nerds in the audience, I mean, they'll appreciate this first few seconds that we're going to go through here, but every human uh, follows a we want to seek pleasure and we want to avoid pain dynamic. So the way that works is when we are doing things that make us feel pleasure or be happy, we increase an output, a natural output of dopamine. We have dopamine in our system that's, that's uh, a hormone that makes us feel relaxed, it makes us happy. Oxytocin gets involved. Oxytocin is a hormone that 
counterbalances test the t- uh, effects of testosterone. And anyone who's ever dealt with a teenager who's really, really ramped up competitively and their testosterone is really going full blast, it's really hard to get them to calm down. They are so competitive and they want to really get energetic and they really want to push through everything. And it's hard to get them to see anything except the prize at the end of the road. So, you know, they don't always make the right choices when they're in a competitive situation. They they only see one thing, so they get tunnel vision and they really push really hard. And because they push really, really hard, they also have an increase in what is known as cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And they put more and more stress on themselves to have a positive outcome, and they lose sight of making positive choices. So the choice dynamics cycle increases dopamine and oxytocin by encouraging them to tone it down, seek to make the proper choices, and every time they do make a positive choice and they have a positive outcome and it turns into what we call a biofeedback cycle, every time we do that, we get this just little bitty uptake of dopamine and it makes us feel really good about ourselves. And the continuous cyclical application of this dopamine cycle leads to habituation. Now, a lot of people think, oh, it's a habit. It's a habit habit forming. No, well, it's a positive habituation. Humans habituate to things that get them where they want to be. And they, it's always about pleasure and avoiding pain, always, across the board. That's a moral imperative that humans have uh, adopted over a million years of evolution. So the way we're able to deal with that is we can actually trigger that effect by looking to reward effort. It isn't always about the outcome. If we reward the effort, we move the goalpost away from the outcome to the effort. So now all of a sudden we can actually see teenagers and we can see preteens who are actually triggering dopamine reactions because they're putting out the effort, regardless of what the outcome ends up being. We reward the effort. The outcome gets recognized, good, bad, or indifferent. We treat failure as a triggering event of let's try again, let's try again, but we reward the effort. The dopamine is going to remain in the cycle. So we actually trigger this continuous biofeedback cycle and we trigger them to want to keep making positive choices because they feel good about the outcomes especially as they start to see the curve self-correct and now they get more good positive outcomes more and more and more and more we want them to have difficult goals but we want them to have attainable goals and every time they achieve a goal we want them to understand that that's just the next rung in the ladder. We want them to go through the doorway and see, oh, hey, I can set another goal because that allows us to do that biofeedback cycle again, gets them to have that dopamine drip again. It's a biological imperative that we get them to reward themselves. And once they get into that cycle of rewarding themselves, most of our work as adults, teachers, parents, community leaders, our work is done because now they become for lack of a better way of saying, habituated to making good, positive choices. Now, we know great coaches have a trick up their sleeve. 
And that trick up their sleeve is they know about this dopamine reward system. But they also know that because they want to reward effort, they have to make sure that anyone in their charge, and a, a, a teacher is a, a form of a coach. We want to make sure that the memory is short for both successes and failures because we want the people that we are working with to focus on the next goal because that's how we get them to trigger the dopamine cycle. We get them to focus forward so if we have a success, we're going to celebrate it a little bit. We have a failure, we're going to focus on it a little bit, but we're going to get it out of and get it behind them, get it as quickly behind them as possible. So we spend exactly the same amount of time on successes as failures. And what that ends up doing is it makes choice the primary goal and the only bad choice is breaking the biofeedback cycle. It's quitting. That's the only bad choice that they can make. Powerful, powerful. And, you know, for, for the listeners that didn't uh, get what you're saying, what I heard was uh, compassion to the point where you would, you know, acknowledge and study the chemicals that are in the back of, of your head, the back of your students' heads when, when they're learning, uh, they get released. And for me, that, that gave me so much awareness to those social competencies that you were uh, referring to and that you were talking about. And it, and it gives so much awareness and almost like a, an awakening to, I would say, social, um, economical, or economically, um, I would say, disadvantaged uh, adolescents. Uh, you know, a lot of times they are overlooked uh, in uh, these types of teaching, these types of uh, settings, these types of practices, right? As it relates to and as it to as it uh, cooperates, I would say with SEL strategies that you were mentioning, those SELs or social emotional learning uh, strategies, if you will. Uh, and for me, I, like like I said, that was what you said was so uh, compassionate, but I also heard. I also heard your philosophy. I also heard your your ethics. I heard, also heard how you um, interconnected it uh, as a relationship, right? You know, what is philosophy? Philosophy literally means love of wisdom, right? From the Greek words philia, meaning love or friendship, and sophia, meaning wisdom, right? Uh, but there uh, has to be other components to philosophy to make it, I would say, holistically with uh, the child and those students that you were mentioning. Uh, let me ask you this next question. Students, well, from a matter of fact, from a psychosocial perspective, how does motivation impact student process? That's what I would ask. Well, there's a few things that you have to look at from a psychosocial perspective. Number one, uh, Let's set the foundation. No child, no human actually, ever gets to determine their origin story. So when a child comes into your sphere of influence and you are a mentor, a coach, uh, a teacher, an administrator, a counselor, you have to meet them where they are, number one. That's very important. And you have to understand that they should feel that they have some form of control over 
where they are and where they could possibly be. They have no control over the past. No one does. No one ever can. They can't have any control over how they got here, but they certainly can have control over where they're going. So how does motivation impact their progress? Well, to find optimal motivation, again, as we talked in the, past, in the last podcast, we need to focus on intrinsic motivation, and we need to find out what is the primary passion that each child, each student has, and we need to trigger that passion. We need to understand, yes, there are some things that are common to all of them, and they need to all be treated from an equal standpoint of they need to make progress within a system. However, within that system, we can treat each one of them uniquely, and we need to trigger their passions and the way we do that is we find out what they envision as success. And we can do that, and we can put it out in front of them, and then we can watch for their intrinsic motivation. And it only comes from two sources. We can't belittle or berate or judge or blame or shame when they have any type of a failure. We can only support them around that corner so that we can help them build esteem from the, us, from their peers, when they succeed, and we need to make sure we reward the effort and acknowledge the success. We get them in that cycle because every time they get that little dopamine charge that we just spoke about, that helps push that intrinsic motivation. They also get a larger push of internal self-esteem when they overcome a barrier. And it can't be a barrier that other people put in front of them. It has to be a self-perceived barrier. So they may, it may be a defined barrier that everyone has in front of them, but when they find a way over that barrier, with or without help, perhaps they ask for a little bit of guidance, a little bit of a hint along the way, but when they themselves overcome a barrier, they get such a charge of dopamine from accomplishing that, and then when you acknowledge the effort that they made to overcome that barrier, you reset the clock and you recharge that motivation. And that is a both, both of these types of motivation and intrinsic push are habitual traits that we identify in all successful students and in adults later on, in all successful leaders, in all successful practitioners. It's common. It's a habituation that we see what's in front of us. We get a little bit of acknowledgement of the effort we put out from our peers, but we ourselves get a huge charge when we overcome some type of barrier in front of us. It's not always a walk in the park. That does nothing for us. We need barriers to overcome, and when we do, wow, does that supercharge us. It's very important that the listeners heard what I just heard, and that was motivation leads to transformation, right? And so, but before you can get to motivation, there has to be reform. Before there's reform, there has to be motivation to reform because reform leads to being transformed. And transform 
only comes about from being informed. And after you have the reformation, the transformation, the information, then you can deform those negative characteristics like regret, like bitterness, like miscommunication, right? And you can start, like you said, fueling our kids with those positive energies, those those positive chemicals, dwarfines being released now into the psyche, into the into the ego, the super ego, the id. And then you can you can have this co-creation. Uh, student co-creation is so so essential. Uh, I wish I knew more about it. Matter of fact, I know you do. Let me ask you. So, student co-creation as it relates to their educational journey, we know it's vital. We know it's crucial. We know it is an essential and integral tool, right? Not only in the home and in the school, but in the community. That will give positive outcomes, optimal outcomes over the chrono system, over, over time, right? Would you mind unpacking co-creation? Would you mind letting us walk with you as you describe, as you explain why co-creation is so essential to the success, right, of a young person's life, of their journey, right? And what are the tools? What are what are the artifacts that's associated with co-creation? Would you mind explaining it to the listening audience? Buddy throwing the positive social change as a pro? I'm glad you threw that one out there, uh, Isaiah, when we were talking about this uh, before we uh, designed the podcast. Co-creation is such an important part of the human situation. Every human environment has examples of co-creation where it is such a powerful effect. One thing that you have to understand is you cannot force motivation into being. Motivation has to come from within to be powerful. Oh, yes, there's some forms of extrinsic motivation that motivate a few people, and it can be over a short period of time, but it's not something that is going to be a universal imperative, and it is not going to be lasting. It does not maintain and sustain people. And all you have to do is go back about 100 years to the Russian Revolution, and you have to look at what happened after the revolution was done, and you see the peasants who were asked to farm the fields, and they did their job, but they were allowed to have a small plot uh, around their huts, their homes that they lived in when they were done for the day. And the outcome of that over time was that the gardens around their houses produced hundreds of times better than the fields that they worked all day. And the reason was because they wanted to work in their gardens. They did not want to work in the fields. They had to work in the fields. So the intense scrutiny effect, the stress that they were under, this was a trigger that kicked in those hormones that we were talking about. The must-do versus the want-to. And the want-to won. 
the want to always wins. That's what the human race does. Our want to always beats the must-dos. We have to just look at what has been defined as the influence response matrix. There's only a few things happens when people try to influence us to do things. When someone demands that we do something, we usually avoid, ignore, or deflect. Or we refuse, or we stoop to conflict. If they ask us to do something or they try to influence us to do something rather than demand that we do it, then there's three potential outcomes. We can comply. If we're somewhat motivated, it may be something we're not passionate about. We minimize it, but we do get it done, and it's a below-average response. We acquiesce, and this is kind of like the average Joe. Yep, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to get it done, and it's going to be great, but it's not going to be extraordinary. And then there are going to be those who are going to be compelled to excel, and that's because intrinsically they're motivated, we hit their passion point, and they're always going to perform above average. And when you do the research and you get right down to what's the difference between comply, acquiesce, or compel, you find out that when it's a co-created situation, when they get to determine partially or fully what they're going to do moving forward. Co-creators are compelled to excel because they refuse to fail at something that they themselves created or co-created. It's almost they're challenging themselves to excel. And when you apply this to the modern man in modernity, students, workers, managers, supervisors, teachers, when they get to co-create their environment, all of a sudden you see a superior optimal result. It just happens over and over and over. It never fails to amaze me when I look at the results, when I allow someone to tell me, okay, if I'm going to give you a homework assignment, you tell me exactly what you want to do. This is what the area is we're going to work on, but you tell me what you want to do to show me that you understand this concept. And when they tell me what they want to do, I say, okay, Bring it back next week and amaze me. Guess what? I'm almost always amazed. I'm amazed myself. What you talked about tonight for me was in the realm of etiquette. <laughs> was in the realm of manners. Was in the realm of moral behavior. Uh, to me, it's, it's tied to pro-social behaviors. It's tied to dispositions. And it's tied to core values. You know, what, what you said tonight, for me, what, especially with co-creation, it's like what motivates your your character, right? Based off of those internal and external experiences that influence the way you see life, your perspective, and how it either motivates you or demotivates you to accomplish or give you the ability to accomplish goals and and how and how do you uh, use choice dynamics to accomplish goals whether they are small or large I heard all of that in what you said in this conversation tonight um, from me I know you talked about the long-term efficacy but I also heard of those short-term milestones as well Suppose we were to have a takeaway tonight 
for the listening audience, what would be what would be a key nugget or nuggets that you would want to leave the audience with to chew on? That's my question for you. I think that there's two things that we really need to understand. Everything is about perspective taking and perspective making. When you're a student or you're a member of a society, especially those who are uh, in the quote-unquote upper crust and you're used to entitlements or you're used to, uh, you have an expectation of being treated a certain way, and then you're expected to live within the average or within the middle, the center. You feel as if you've lost something. When you are from the other end of the spectrum, when you are in the disadvantaged part of society and you are allowed to move to the center and you cross those barriers and you find a way through choice, proper choice and understanding how to make the right choices and you get past some barriers and you're able to reach even average all of a sudden, your perspective is, I have accomplished something great. And it's sad to me that society is in a, at a point where some people would feel that the middle is a failure, while other people would feel that the middle is such a radical success. We need to find a way to get both sides of that coin to the same perspective that everyone deserves to have a good end game and the way that happens is everyone has the right to make their own choices and co-create their own quality world moving forward the second part of that equation is if you can remove blaming, shaming, and judging from every equation and you can approach each person with the idea that instead of demanding, you find a way to co-create solutions and give them a voice, a seat at the table, and they can come up with compelling solutions that whether it fails or succeeds, they were allowed to try the fact that they were allowed to try and fail gives them another point to set another goal. Even if there's a failure, it's still a new platform to build another attempt from. So we have to give people the ability to try, even if it leads to failure after failure after failure. Because even Edison took 10,000 attempts to make one light bulb that worked. Society deserves the ability to make their own choices, even if it does lead to some failures, because there is no path to success better than failure, but to never even allow them to have the opportunity to fail, to never try, to me, that's, that's sad. Very sad. For listeners that don't know, you know, Buddy Thornton Apostle's change agent is not just shooting off the hip. This is after years and years of observing and collecting data on and about human behavior and human contact and conduct and social actions within and inner social actions within uh, relationships. And, and then he took all the information, right, and he drew certain conclusions, right? 
and this is what really uh, psychologists do. To be honest with you, they, they observe human behavior. They they, heard, they observe them in different uh, settings, whether they are controlled settings or, or uncontrolled settings, and um, they they reach certain conclusions based off of patterns that they see, you know, um, or cycles that they see. And so choice dynamics is one of those ways of breaking cycles, especially those cycles that uh, are, are, are deemed or some people may classify or categorize as negative cycles, right? And so choice dynamics is a, a self-interest, if I could say that, uh, curriculum or, or, or self-help. I think that's more... Uh, uh, descriptive, a, a self-help uh, type of curriculum to help motivate and give motivational strategies to help you to helping you become your best self. Listen, before we get out of here, Faith Thornton, is there anything else you want to say before we we go? Because we're we're about out of time. The next time you feel like you need to try to control the person next to you, or your child, or your spouse or one of your employees, think about what that's going to do to their motivation. And think about what possibly taking enough time to allow them to have a voice in the decision and what type of motivation you're going to create inside of their heart if you allow them to co-create that situation as opposed to just demanding some type of result. And I think you're going to be amazed like I usually am. Well, this was another impactful night of the Impact Education Lisa. This is episode 108 with our panel tonight, our guest tonight, our other guest, Buddy Thornton, the Positive Social Change Agent Pro. Good night.